1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm Daniel Shea, your host for today's interview with Terry McGlynn, professor of biology at California State University, Dominguez Hills, and research associate in the Department of Entomology in the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County. His book, The Chicago Guide to College Science Teaching, was published in 2020 by the University of Chicago Press. Imagine back to college, or if you're in college, imagine the semester's just getting started, and you're now scanning the lecture auditorium for the row of seats which will best suit your mood on this afternoon in September. Lots of seats are taken, lots of people seem to know each other. You choose a seat, off to one side by yourself, and just then, a bald man with a grey beard steps out at the front of the room. He casts a look into the auditorium which to your mind is a look at you, And weirdly, that's what you were hoping he'd do. But you're still thinking, who is he? And you're thinking too, who are all these others who've signed up for this course on biostatistics? Now, an audible hush ends every little conversation and quiets the shuffling of feet and the shifting of tablets and notebooks. It's the hush by which an auditorium responds to every professor's unspoken message, I'm about to begin. This semester my goal is to teach you absolutely nothing, this man at the front begins, and beginning thus has your and everyone's attention. If I do my job as well as possible, then I will not teach one single fact or concept. Instead, I will set up the circumstances for you to discover information on your own. You only really learn something if you discover it on your own. So, our class will be set up so that you sort through and find information provided to you to answer questions and to go through experiences that enable you to make your own inferences and figure out concepts on your own. And you'll be reading a lot outside class. This course has a destination. We will discuss the roots, and there are lots of concepts that interconnect. However, if I hand you a complete set of directions, then you will be deprived of the opportunity to truly learn the way. Don't blindly study the concepts in this course. When you are working on a question or a problem, be sure to recognize specifically that your approach to studying is tied to the larger questions at hand. Please be sure to ask me frequently about the different ways to study the content we are covering in class. Because it's my job here not just to share information with you, but to support you as you work to learn. Words to this effect are Terry McGlynn's opener to his courses, and these words encapsulate so very much of what his book, College Science Teaching, wants to impart so that instructors can instruct at their best and so that learners can learn at their best. Here is Terry's teaching philosophy. You only learn something if you discover it on your own. And here, too, is Terry's attention to efficiency in his teaching, His job is to set up the circumstances for discovery. Terry also makes explicit, as the fact should be made explicit, that the students will not only be learning biostatistics, but they will be consciously pursuing just how they go about learning biostatistics. Terry's course opener is designed backward from the end of semester. This course has a destination, and the learning outcomes are plainly stated. You will work to learn and you will read on your own, and you will find support in both activities. The course on biostatistics will clearly involve lecturing of some sort, Terry's lecturing already here at the start. However, it will be another component entirely that will drive much of what students are doing during classes, and that component might be called active learning. You sort through and find information provided to you to answer questions, and to go through experiences that enable you to make your own inferences and to figure out concepts on your own. And clear in every word that Terry speaks is his respect for you and your chosen spot today, and for everyone situated near and far throughout the auditorium. Terry cares about everyone who's chosen this course. He wants everyone to think and thinking to learn. Don't blindly study the concepts in this course. College science teaching is every science instructor's guide to how they want to teach and to how they can achieve that special brand of teaching that they'll want to call their own. College Science Teaching is a guide to the myriad of choices which face the science instructor who, like Terry on the first days of his courses, stands at the front of a classroom in the hopes of allowing the students to engage in the learning that they themselves will do. So let's begin today's episode, Terry McGlinn and College Science Teaching. Terry, welcome to Scholarly Communication. Hi, thanks. I'm really glad to be here. Thanks. Very good. Um, I was wondering if you could give us uh, the background to the book, where the idea germinated and how the whole project then took off from there.
0: Yeah. Uh, So in, in 2013, I started um, writing uh, on a website or a blog, I guess. Although sometimes I don't like to call it a blog because people think, oh, a blog is just a blog. Um, And so the I had a lot of things to say and a lot of thoughts about what it's like to be um, a you know a scientist, a researcher uh, who works in a teaching focused institution. and so um, so in the United States you have you know all of these um, you know research universities but then there's a lot of smaller colleges that are focused on teaching undergraduates but they hire professors who have full research programs that might be smaller in scale but so we're doing research with undergraduates. Um, while also teaching. Um, and the the conversation about being a scholar and being a teacher and being a professor often was missing that perspective at being in one of those teaching institutions. And so um, that led me to create this website, um, Small Pond Science, where I discussed a lot of these things. Um, and so in the course of this writing in this uh, you know blog over the years, I noticed that whenever I talked about teaching and specifically evidence-based teaching about how that we should be teaching as, um, you know, not just teaching from the hip or teaching the way that we were taught, but actually looking at um, how the scholarship says, what is effective teaching. Um, You know, it got a lot of interest, a lot of comments, the post got shared a lot. Um, and, And so I noticed that there, that many scientists don't pay attention whatsoever to the, the scholarship on effective teaching, it's a whole field, right? There's are all their own journals. There are, you know, obviously there are experts in, you know, science education. Um, um, but the people who, most people who are teaching at the college level aren't actually paying attention to what the experts are saying and studying about how to teach effectively. And so I saw that there's this gap of communication between um, the experts in teaching and most of the practitioners. Um, and so um, I, I, I was really interested in filling this gap. And so it was uh, intimidating to me as a person who um, is not, I'm not a science education researcher. I I study ants. That's my research field. Um, But I spend plenty of time reading about, um, you know, the scholarship of teaching and learning. And so um, I, I felt like to bridge that gap, I needed to write a book to reach out to the scientists who weren't going to be picking up the more scholarly books on, um, on science teaching. And, um, and so I think, uh, it's a hope, you know, I've, I've now I've done that. And so that I, now I think that there's like a, an audience out there of people who hopefully after reading this book will be more inclined to read those journal articles about science teaching or read more scholarly books, targeting people who are already really interested in, in teaching well.
1: Well, I think the book definitely achieves that. I mean, and I think that you uh, you you portrayed it slightly as a deficit, or you were intimidated, at least, by the fact that this wasn't your background, but your background is science, and you are teaching. And that's kind of one of the things that comes out through the book, mm-hmm. I find, that it becomes then more understandable, because it's from, as you state in the uh, introduction, a very practical standpoint. It encourages the step into the specialist literature, but it's really trying to help scientists teach better. Um, and what, what, what one of the things I find that the, the book achieves is to help. Uh, you talk about a chasm separating scientists from scholars of teaching and learning. And I think it certainly helps bridge that because it speaks in such a, a direct, clear, practice-oriented voice.
0: Yeah. Thanks. Um, I, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I think for the audience that I'm trying to reach, I think I hope that I've accomplished that. Um, in a way, I feel like I'm a little disappointed in that, um, it seems like to have not caught on or attracted the interest of the people who actually are the work who I'm trying to highlight in the book, the people who are scholars of science education, um, you know, who say, here's how to teach effectively and who do all the research for this. And so, you know, I try to point towards this work in the book, in the notes and, you know, um, and clearly, I, obviously what I'm talking about is informed by their research. Um, but I feel... I, I don't know if they feel like I dumped it down too much for them, or I tried to simplify or avoid the, you know, uh, if, if I think it's possible to talk about really complex topics in a really straightforward way that people can understand without using jargon as a science communicator. Um, yeah, I feel like I could explain, you know, the biology of ants without using, you know, very detailed, you know, evolutionary and ecological and myrmecological terminology. Um, And so and I think the same thing is possible for for talking about teaching, which is what I tried to do, Um, you know, because when you read books about science teaching, usually they are filled with the words about pedagogy. Um, And uh, but a lot of that language involving pedagogy is not are not words that scientists pick up um, in their education. Is this information that that we all should have? Oh, definitely. Um, But we don't. And so. I didn't want to teach people the jargon I just wanted to introduce the concepts in a really general way. Um, so but so that side of the community hasn't said, "Oh, well this is a good entry point to our work." They haven't said anything like that as far as I know.
1: Um, but uh, I find that a real pity. And, and 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 what you say about the fact that, you know, you as a science communicator uh, can speak about your science in a way that reaches, you know, any audience that you happen to be aiming for. Of course, education should be able to be taught that way or talked about that way or researched that way. I mean, I see no need at all that it be a closed off community with its own language. Uh, I mean, education is about people. Education is, in my view, so much about communication. If you can't research education in a clear way, then I don't know if you're doing the, doing it right. <laughs> Yeah, I
0: think maybe I think I mean it might be just a thing of territoriality where it's like they might be thinking and they probably are very well quick. Well, who is he to write this book? Um like who am I to write this book when it's not my field of expertise? Um I sort of felt like well, no one else has written this yet in as a practical guide. And so actually the working title for this was A Practical Guide to College Science Teaching before the University of Chicago Press decided that they wanted to call it The Chicago Guide and I thought that was a nice idea. Um, and so, um, and so the idea is by calling it a practical guide is to say, okay, I'm, you know, it's just, here are the pragmatics about doing this. And so the idea is it doesn't mean that I necessarily have to be like, uh, a scholarly expert, but I'm more of a practitioner. Um, and so here's one practitioner talking to other practitioners. And so from that perspective, you know, I think it's successful. Um, but hopefully, um, the you know th- I think the the this chasm you know I think we need to have people approach it from both sides I think we need to make sure to understand that as teachers of science that um, we need to be professionals as teachers and to engage in the literature and the knowledge about teaching and then also then the scholars of science teaching um, uh, uh, you know will continue to need to work make their work accessible. Uh, to others, I think it's always important for academics across the board, regardless of our field, to try to make our work accessible to people who are not um, specifically in our discipline. Um, and so, a few years ago, I made this conscious effort. Whenever I'm writing a scientific paper, my goal when writing this is that someone who's not an expert in my field could actually read it and feel like they kind of understand it, um, which has really transformed how I think about writing, um, you know, my own science. Um, And so I think a lot of these articles about teaching are really understandable until they talk about the theory they're working on. And then once you start and then um, and if you're not familiar with that theory, then all of a sudden you have to start, you know, Googling and looking at Wikipedia and finding all this background information just to understand the idea in one particular article. Um, You know, just because, you know, uh, you know, bodies of knowledge are based on theory and understanding how these theories work is foundational for understanding the field um and um and so all these theories of education um which are important and foundational are
1: ones that scientists generally aren't familiar with and it's Actually, usually possible. I mean, my own background is literary studies in modern languages. And whenever I was writing in that area, and now in writing studies as well, I always found myself incorporating the theories into the explanation or into the topic or whatever it might be that I was actually writing about at that moment. So. I suppose much as what you're achieving in in your science writing I was making it understandable for anyone who just happened to be picking it up at that strand in the discussion if you get what I mean. So in other words there's no real need to just sort of name cite or give a piece of jargon without necessarily incorporating it into your particular study at that moment is there? Right. I think um I think people I think there's
0: a false dichotomy um about how Uh, the idea is like either you're communicating to the expert or you're commuting to communicating to the general public. I think you can communicate ideas to, to the experts, but it, um, but if you just, you know, take one or two more sentences or choose to phrase things somehow differently, I think a lot of the, this communication gap between experts and non-experts, and I'm thinking about the biology of ants right now, or like ecology, you know, is that, um, is that we intentionally choose language that is exclusionary. We are choosing language that is designed to communicate to other people in our field, aha, I'm one of you, and I'm using this particular jargon because that means you know that I know um, that I'm a member of this field and that I know all the detailed nuances of what this term means. Um, and so, but you could choose to write that sentence in a different way so that the expert still knows what you're talking about, but the public also understands that sentence. Like, I think we write sentences intentionally choosing to have general readers not be able to read it. Um, you know, and sometimes it's shortcut. You can use like that jargon to communicate an idea really quickly instead of just using one sentence to explain what that jargon means.
1: And that shortcut, I think, is uh, that's that's a good way of putting it, because there's, there's a shortcut in communication, but sometimes there's also a shortcut in thinking, isn't there? I've often been surprised by uh, somebody taking a term, and if you think of many of the terms that are in jargon, none of them are A, clearly defined, and many of them are surrounded by uh, a, a fair amount of controversy. I've always been a bit surprised when someone has unpacked one of those terms a bit, in a half a sentence, as you're saying, or maybe a full sentence, and realizing what they meant by it or in this context and starting then to think, well, is that how I see it? And so on. So in other words, you could write that way, not just having in mind a broader audience, but even at the same time, your expert audience.
0: Right. Yeah. Cause oftentimes like as, there might be an accepted idea of what this jargon is, but there are subtleties in understanding what that piece of jargon is. Like, so in ecology, you have like say neutral theory, right? And to say, you could say, oh, I interpreted my results in light of neutral theory and here's what I would think. But then again, it could be that different experts have different ideas about the nuances of what do they mean by neutral theory, right? They could be looking at it from one perspective or another perspective. And so if you include your definition of that, or you describe it using other words rather than just that piece of jargon, yeah, then, then actually, then you'll have fewer arguments about understanding what you mean and then really getting to the heart of the idea. Yeah, I agree.
1: And we've been now talking quite a lot about writing. And uh, yeah. my listen, my listeners will know that writing is... Uh, I, I work in a writing program and I work primarily also with scientists here in Germany. So uh, that's close to my heart. Uh, I wonder what you could say, perhaps in a broad brush stroke, to, stroke to get us started, where would... Uh, Writing and reading, let's say, let's take the two together as as, as textual skills fit into the teaching of college college science. Um, I think it's really, I think it's critical. I think, uh, uh, you know, most
0: universities require have some minimal college writing requirement, and usually the universities that have a higher endowment um, and smaller class sizes, when um, those two usually go hand to hand, have more writing requirements or more expectations of student writing because. Uh, they can afford to do so um, because because um, writing requ- writing uh, teaching writing requires feedback from and you know, and that takes time to give quality feedback, either you know, a conversation or back in writing. Um, and so um, um, if you can't write it well, odds are that you can't explain it well, which means odds are you uh, can't understand it. But oftentimes I think we construct our understanding through our writing. Um, and so if there's a complex idea that we're trying to break down as you put it into writing, then you start to come to an understanding. Um, so I, uh, I don't talk about this a lot in the book about the importance of writing because it's more of a practical sense of like, well, how do you grade writing and how do you, know, do you use rubrics? And, um, you know, how do you engage with um, students and doing writing assignments? But, um,
1: but I think it's uh, critical in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was uh, also thinking uh, about some of the – it's true very much so that y- y- your your view is really into the classroom itself. So um, writing as uh, a skill set doesn't come up uh, perhaps as – you know, a larger topic for sure. But it it got me to thinking of all the different assignments that occur inside of many college classes. Uh, The classic one is the experimental protocol after somebody's done some time in the lab, or perhaps even after field work. And uh, you talk that, uh, you say that if we're learning, then we're engaged and we're motivated. Um, In other words, the two need to go hand in hand. It's very hard to be actually learning something if you're not you know, understanding why you're doing it and caring about it. And that brings me to the idea of uh, authentic assignments. Many experimental protocols are, you talk also about this uh, at some point in the book, there's a, there's just tradition in science teaching. This is the way we do it. So, you know, For 10 years, we've done our per- experimental protocols in this pati- particular fashion. And It would be interesting to say, okay, well, yes, the science needs to go in there. You need to show that you've understood the experiment and the results. But why not make it authentic in the sense that you submit it rather than hand it in? And that perhaps a postdoc or even the PI perform as an editor, the kind of work that you would when you were later on, if you're so lucky in, in your scientific career, submitting um, research articles, right? And that's maybe even a journal, an online journal get put together by the science department and the publishable, quote unquote, publishable uh, protocols get put up there.
0: Yeah, I think that, um, and I think that idea intersects with, uh, with, uh, what in the United States, at least I'm familiar with, is like there's a growing interest in course-based undergraduate research that you're doing genuine investigation. Um, and so I think if, if you're giving students a writing assignment where they're supposed to write about what they did in lab or in the field, if they did a project or if they followed a protocol, but then they need to write up what that protocol is. If, you, if it's a cookbook project, you know, which you didn't design the methods yourself and you're just doing what you were told and then you're writing the methods. Well, then simply you're just jumping through the hoop of explaining the cookbook method that you went through. You're you know, it's like you there's no ownership. And so the more you can build in original investigation, the more you give students an opportunity to uh, um, uh, attempt to create a new understanding um, or create new knowledge for the world. Um, or at least new knowledge for themselves um, that they didn't know and they discover it through science rather than um, just, you know, having them repeat an experiment that's already been done by either previous armies of students or, you know, in the literature, then that means that um, when they choose to write about this, then they realize that they're doing something that hasn't been done before. So there's a real need to communicate this well and to, and you're actually crafting something new. And I think, Um, I think that's really important. Um, And so just like when you assign a typical, like a stereotypical term paper where it's like, I want you to read a bunch of stuff and then, you know, synthesize it together. uh, You know, in theory, what you're doing is you're asking students to like come up with uh, an understanding and, and formulate new questions and come up with new kinds of knowledge based on integrating the things that they've read. Um, So again, it's, it's like, so that's a form of inquiry where you're actually asking questions based on what you read rather than just trying to repeat. Um, and so I think, uh, writing is a critical piece of that because, um, um, oftentimes when you're trying to formalize what you, um, what you understand, then, uh, you discover in putting in writing that, uh, Either you f- tell yourself once you see it in writing, oh, well, that doesn't make sense or that's not particularly important or useful. Or then someone can write th- back to you and say, okay, I looked at what you wrote and here's here's what you wrote says, or here's what I think about what you said. Um, and, and I think it takes a really experienced writer to, um, to look at what you wrote and realize, oh, that's not so good, that doesn't make sense. Um, and so what we do when we're teaching writing and science Um, is, um, is we're showing students, uh, what that accountability in your own writing looks like, where you can look back at something that you've read probably after you let it sit for a few days, usually student assignments might not have those few days available. Right. And then, (laughs) and you go, Oh, okay. Uh, um, now I see, okay. You know, that doesn't communicate what I wanted to, or that, um, that's far too superficial or that's just unclear. Um. And so, but what we need to, and so, uh, you know, as gently as possible, steer to students to seeing that understanding in their own writing, you know, that's why you always ask, you know, I remember I always got the response when I got writing back from my professors and it said, what does this mean? What does this mean? I'm like, I just wrote a sentence. That's what it means. Um, And, and I think what they're doing is they're, you know, what they're doing now I see is they're asking me to ask myself, okay, I said that. But when I said that, what, you know, that was unclear. Instead of just saying it's unclear, they're asking me to ask myself, what does that mean? Um, and so then I could discover for myself that it's unclear.
1: And th- this puts me in mind also of the the negative impact or just the simply lack of impact, as you say, that, um, you know, sort of just following up tradition, the way that the course had been held before you ho- hold it also in the future can have on learning um, this idea that, You know, you might have somebody who's writing a protocol, for example, I'll just stick with this example, Um, and not really be making him or herself herself clear, but also that is more of a product of the assignment rather than the person's, you know – writing abilities or the understanding of the science. and if we follow perhaps as, as, as you were saying a, a real course based researched approach where they're doing something original and not just for the you know 14th year in a row the same uh, published experiment, then they would have reason to actually in the discussion, make their case. They'd be interested in trying to understand what it is that they're they're saying there. Whereas often, I mean, this is sort of my daily bread when I hear work in um, in Heidelberg at the writing program, undergrads or master's students who come to me not really knowing the reason for the assignment and therefore doing terrible jobs at the introduction of the discussion, because you can't write those parts of a protocol or later an article unless you're you have a very clear purpose. I mean, they, they live from a purpose, don't they?
0: Yeah. It's so, uh, when you're trying to complete those assignments, like these, you know, like a cookbook assignment of like, write the protocol for this thing that you did, right. Then it's, um, then you're, you're following through a set of prescribed steps. And so, and each of those steps, you just need to know, Oh, I need to write a sentence where I said, this is where I did this. And I write a sentence, where I, You know? And so I think you can get through the whole thing without thinking about the grand reason why you're doing it. Right. Cause you're the grand reason why you're doing it is that you need to turn it in. So you need to get your grade. And so then all the decisions, the, the little decisions that you're making when you're doing the writing assignment, those decisions are all based on, uh, a micro level of, okay, this next sentence and that next sentence, rather than, um, if you, um, have more control over what you're writing, or if you have a bigger set of questions, if if you, as you say, if you know why you're doing this, what is the purpose for the assignment other than to turn it in to get a grade, you know, then, then that purpose is, um, behind all those other small decisions so that it guides you towards some destination. And so, uh, yeah, so the which I think really just gets gets down to the central question of like intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation in teaching. We're right. I mean, most of what we do in teaching um and I think particularly so in the sciences is, is extrinsically motivated about I need to get through this course, I you know want to get this job I have, you know, uh you know, there's something from the outside that makes me have to do well in this course, as opposed to, wow, I'm really curious about this. But because our learning objectives in science are often, you know, very focused and narrow, like if you're taking a physiology class, and it's like, okay, then you're expected to learn this particular way about how muscles work. And if, you know, and you need to learn, you know, this, you know, um, you know, uh, molecular pathway, for example. Um, And so, uh, but... You know, learn we learn best when we're self directed, when we're actually curious about what we're teaching, so uh, curious about what we're learning. Um, and so, um, how is it that as a professor, you say, Here's the destination, here are all the things that I expect you to learn, but at the same time, uh, um, you're, um, you there are particular things that you and the university and accrediting agencies and professional training programs are expecting your students to know when they get out of the course. And so if they're just curious and they start reading the textbook and get interested in particular things, which are not the ones that you're really supposed to be focusing on in the class, that's a real problem. And so I don't have a solution for that in science teaching, but the idea is that, but probably intrinsically motivated learning might carry students to a destination that you don't haven't necessarily designated as an instructor of the course.
1: I think this probably gets back to the question of what's the administration supposed to be doing and what are the measurements supposed to be telling us about what a person can do and what a person has learned. Um, Essentially, if your method was followed and people were learning heavily what they were most curious about, I'm going to guess that we're going to have more highly qualified people coming out of that program than people who are just looking to fill up the qualifications.
0: Right. Yeah. And I think it's possible as an instructor to design a course where you um, if you um, if you have people exploring the things that interest them in great detail, but it's within the realm, within the foundation of um, the the field that you're studying, then you still will learn the basics along the way. And so it's really there are a lot of professors I know who um, who actually have never really taken like an introductory level course in the, the, the field of their expertise, really. So actually, so I'm an ecologist and I'm an entomologist. Um, I've um, never taken an entomology course in my life. Um, and I've learned about insects here or there. I, I, I audited one insect biology course as an undergraduate, but I'm not formally trained as an entomologist, but I do research, but I can teach, I've taught courses in insect biology and I know entomology. Entomology is the study of insects, by the way, people. And, and so um, and so how can I be an entomologist without really having had an entomology class? It's like, well, because all these other classes I've been taking have been in the context of insects. And so I've learned all these fundamentals of insect biology you know, uh, in that process. And then I can fill in the gaps where need be. Um, and so like the way that you build expertise is not necessarily one step after the, after the other, after the other, let's say if you're in a nursing training program, right. And you want to teach someone how to, um, uh, you know, insert an IV into a person, right. There's a certain step of protocols that you really, really need to follow, right? And there are certain laws that you need to be aware of. And so, you know, you're you're training, you know, uh, uh, a particular procedure. Um, but if you're having a degree in which you're training someone in science, in a whole field, um, there are so many different ways of being an expert. And why do we have specific... And so if we have our learning adjectives being so specific, where you have to be able to answer these particular questions on a test, um, then, um, then
1: we're really missing out. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it gets back to uh, probably the point of, well, what is the difference between vocational training and an educational setting which is meant to enable people to be doing things where perhaps there isn't quite a job description yet for that i mean technology is certainly full of that but i mean science itself has plenty of those avenues and i mean you yourself are are a case in point for you know someone who trains themselves in researching all around a particular area who they where they end up actually um um, working uh, maybe maybe I'll shift though slightly um, to, to get us a little closer to the book <laughs> um, yeah uh, so, some of my questions one of the things that really jumped out at me uh, was uh, on, on on page 19 I've got it open before me because this was really one of the key moments in the book besides the uh, opening lecture which which I quoted at the beginning um, was about learning outcomes and we've been actually talking around this point, as we've said much of what we've said so far. So the purpose of teaching, I quote, is for our students to learn. And you think like, okay, so where's he going with this? But then you, then your next paragraph, how is it possible that we lose sight of this goal? And then it becomes clear exactly what you mean and how radical this idea is and how often it gets misconstrued. The covering of material is one thing, but the actual teaching is a whole other thing together.
0: Yeah. Um, so the, um, so I tell this story in the book, um, and I've told this story in you know, in life other times, one time I was substitute teaching for this professor. Um, and, and, uh, and she handed me her notes for this lecture. Um, and, um, and I was like, wow, so is this the whole week and you want me to start out? She's like, oh no, that's the day. Um, and, that's and it was like many many pages of her personal notes, and I honestly don't know how she could have taught all that material in a single class. Um, and so I covered, covered. I went through like maybe one quarter of the notes she gave me for teaching in that one particular day, and she's like, "Oh yeah, well I go fast and the students write quickly and they got caught up." Um, and it's like and so it's like so from her perspective when she was teaching that class, she was just, um, basically. Sp- telling students here's a bunch of terms here's a bunch of ideas now go home and read it which i guess is one way of learning but she wasn't really teaching it she was just saying here's a bunch of here are the things that i'm expecting you to know and so it wasn't being taught um and so like if you, so here's a concept here's a theory instead of breaking that down for people to explain it she's like moved on to the next concept or theory and i guess she was hoping that then the students would come back to the next class and having spent many hours trying to understand that on their own. Like, I did, so what's the purpose of being in the classroom? I mean, if you're just telling students, I expect you to learn these things and then they can go home and read them. Um, you know, then why are you paying for an education? Why are we there? Can't we just give them that list of things that they're supposed to learn? Um, so the big, I think the big
1: what, textbook, maybe, or something like that,
0: <laughs> right? I mean, yeah, you have a textbook, but so, so I would hope that if you're doing something in the classroom, you're doing something in the classroom that you can't get from a textbook. Um, and, but, sorry, yeah, yeah go but, ahead. Yeah.
1: Okay, well, I was they- just going to—I was just going to say that this is this is what makes me think of um, the the section where you start talking about you know a teaching style, developing your own style. So, I mean, I suppose we're at the kind of teacher who's beyond your example, where they've realized, okay, actually, I do need to teach, and not just simply <laughs> preach, I guess you could say. Um, but but even there, real like basic foundational issues start to come up as as I was reflecting on what you wrote. You talk about the fact that you know. Picking bits and pieces from great courses that you can remember doesn't ensure that you're going to have then a great course yourself as a teacher or relying. What else are you going to rely on? Relying on your own learning experience is going to probably not get you very far because your learning experience is unique and probably exceptional if you've ended up being a college teacher or the the other one which really got me thinking, was times and places are different. And I mean, I lived through this myself. I, I grew up in Massachusetts and did most of my education there. Ended up coming, though, to Germany and have taught English and other things, amongst them writing, of course, here in Germany. <laughs> after after working here for four years and getting a degree here, you would think I'd step into a German clas- classroom and act like a German teacher. No, I go immediately back to my American models and in my upbringing and so on. And completely flopped because i mean we're talking two different I, I was speaking in english but an entirely different culture you can't teach that way over here <laughs> and so on and so forth i mean these 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 developing you know these points about developing your style i found really really helpful thanks yeah
0: um yeah I th- that's really interesting also the i mean your experience about how um your teaching would be more successful in one environment than the other is based on the expectations that the students have that when you come into the classroom and where they're coming from. And so um, you can't expect students to, well, a abandon whatever else is going in their life outside the classroom. Cause that's part of what they're learning. Right. I mean, that affects what they're able to do, but, um, but what they expect when you come in the classroom, you have to work at, to some extent within the bounds of those expectations. If you, You know, if you give them some something completely different than they want or expect, you know, then they, then, then you won't have buy-in then they, you know, because ultimately for a student to do well in a class to, and from that perspective, I mean, to actually learn stuff rather than to earn an A, which the two often could be different, um, is that, um, but for a student to actually really learn, they actually have to like being there and they have to feel like they're part of the class and that what you're doing makes sense. So I suppose if you come in and you're this guy, you know, teaching in uh, North American style, although I really I'm curious now what makes a German classroom a German classroom different, Um, but I can see,
1: you know, how that doesn't meet their needs. I, well, I mean, I could in in, in very briefly, I, I want to st- stay yeah. on your book, but very briefly uh, fill that in. Um, it, it's a German slash international classroom, because mm-hmm. I've been most often in groups where somewhere between 50 to 75% of the students were German. And that means I could have a very large percentage of people who, you know, were non German. And uh, essentially, the uh, North American or American style uh, is sp- Speaking, let's say, too much in a democratic eye level sort of we're all in this together approach. Um, I had my most success in the English departments because the English departments, so, there's so many students there who have been abroad and are acculturated to this that they were ready for it and, as you say, expecting it. But outside of English departments, the, the approach has been more, you're the teacher over there, and you're standing on something higher than us for a reason, and we're ready to kind of listen <laughs> to begin with anyway, right? And then we'll see how the class uh, develops. So I suppose in a very simplified way, that would capture a little bit of the difference that I was facing. Yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the thing is, yeah. And so the, that relationship with your professor, how do you perceive them is so important, right? And so like that you feel respected. And so, and so it sounds like that if you establish The idea is like if you embrace your authority and you say, I'm the expert who's in charge here and you emphasize that, then that might be more important as opposed to where in the US, like, you know, being folksy might, you know, and. While recognizing you're an expert, not thinking that you're a better person because you're an expert, kind of thing. That,
1: that's that's like, that's a really good way of putting it. Actually, that that, that 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 more eloquently expresses what I was after. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay. <laughs> I think I think that's yeah, that's that that would explain one element of it anyway. I mean, there's so many other okay. things involved, but but that's that, that, no, that's quite good. Um, one huh. one of the other techniques or developmental approaches that you bring in uh, many different times. And I mentioned it also in the intro was the idea of a teaching philosophy. And uh, I, I realized I had one without knowing what it was. And now I know what it is. And that's always cool. So thank you. <laughs> yeah. and, and at the writing program, my is you can write it better than I can. Let me show you how. And that was always sort of swimming about in my head. I, I, I had put it down for myself in a notebook somewhere, but I never really sold it. And now I see, actually, that is something that you can also share, though, with um, your students and with the program that you happen to be working in, I would think, right?
0: Oh, yeah, I think so. I mean, also, the thing is that that would, you know, since that essentially, whether you know it or not. You know, it guides the choices that you make throughout the semester, right? If you if, if your whole se- if your whole course is like this choose your own adventure where you keep making decision after decision after decision through this maze, right? Then if people know your guidepost about what's guiding your decisions, right? And so if you're, and so. There's obviously a few things that structure this decision, you know, about if you're being respectful for students, if you're being efficient and so on, like, but, um, but also your, but your teaching philosophy is like guides you towards what, well, which one will help students learn better? Like, what am I trying to do with this class? Right. And so the thing is, it sounds like with yours, then, um, then first of all, that communicates to students that you believe in them, that, that they can do it better, right? If they're writing their own idea, then they can write it best. They can write it better than you, and you're just showing them the pathway to be doing that. And I think that's really powerful for the for students to see that. Um, and so that way, they know that they're respected, but they also can see, oh, that's why he's doing this because he's showing
1: me how I can do this. Um, and- right, I'm not going to write it for them. And, and plus, since I'm dealing primarily with natural scientists and come myself from the humanities, I, it, it was also meant as a message of literally, look, all I've got here is ways of writing. <laughs> You're going to have to pick up the other end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, I can't
0: explain the science. So it's, that's up to you. <laughs> exactly.
1: Um- yeah. G- good. Yeah. Well, uh, one, one thing that we have touched upon, I'd like to come back to it briefly, though, um, because I, I've been doing a few other interviews on education, uh, one that was just published about two or three weeks ago um, called The Teaching Archive, which was in the humanities. And there uh, it was just a brief review of English studies and showing back over the past century how how different teaching practices were to what they are now and, and and very often it was just as you were talking about earlier original research it was you know bringing for example uh, students into the british museum into the archives and having them look at you know all the documents that surround perhaps a novel or a particular poem and having them piece that together together to understand the poem through that or to make sense of it and and this brings me to the larger question of okay well if what we need to do is motivate our undergrads or even our master's students in the sciences, how is it that we then devise this original research? How is it that we also perhaps communicate to certain PIs or professors who think that's not going to happen, that it actually can happen? Yeah. Um, I
0: think it's a, I mean, it's a skill that some people have, um, but I, it's, We would have to do it differently than the way that we run our own research labs. Like, if we try to design an experiment like the way that we would run our, like, that we would do a project around lab, then, then, then these course-based research experiences won't necessarily be successful, and there is, and so, there are so many, you know, um, handy. Pra- actually, there are a lot of practical guides and suggestions towards how to run a course-based undergraduate research experience, and so. But how is it you get a whole class of people working together on an original question where you can work towards and find the answer? And I think the answers ended up being very discipline-specific. What that looks like in chemistry, for example, would look really different than it would look like, say, in animal behavior versus what it would look like in molecular biology. And so um so I don't um you know do like you know biochemistry and I'm just like how could you ask an original biochemical question in a lab? I don't I honestly don't know and I wouldn't even know where to start. And I'm not sure I could really advise a person. But when it comes to say, you know, animal behavior or a question about ecology, you know, I I'm able to look at the discipline and say, oh here is an area where there's a gap. Um, I think the one of the I don't know the secrets or a key or you know the uh, something to keep in mind is that. Um That answering, you don't have to try to answer the world's most profound question. You can answer a very pragmatic question within a limited scope. And so, for example, in ecology, if you're doing a course-based project, just own the fact that you're not asking a question that will be applicable to all over the world. You might be asking a question that answers something literally just in your backyard. And you ask, is this true in my backyard? But then you're working with the students. You want to make sure that this question still has value, that has applicability in some way. That you might not, you might be putting it in the context of theory, but ultimately it's a real pragmatic answer to a real, um, you know, a question of of local importance. So, for example...
1: I, I was going to say, I think that I think that's really great advice because I mean, you talk, for instance, in the book about group projects. We've talked about making experimental protocols closer to something that would look like a research article, or at least the process that's involved in putting together a research article. If the research itself is, even if on a local basis, um, you know, original in this sense, then. These are skills that uh, are being learned and also scientific thinking that's being learned while the science itself is being learned. It makes me think of uh, from the uh, scholarship of, of, of uh, teaching and learning, uh, make it stick, Peter Brown and Henry Rodiger, oh, yeah. who, who you might have heard, and, and Mark McDaniel, where they have as their motto, practice like you play because you'll play like you practice. Um, we can't be sending scientists out there into the world who've never practiced all these essential basic um parts of science right right yeah and so and so and if and if what we're and yeah. so the
0: a lot of undergraduate education involves if students are going to be doing science that they're just jumping through the the steps that have been told them about what they're supposed to do when right and so but then when you actually are like hired in a job to be a scientist or you're becoming an academic or you know, if you're just communicating, or even if you're like, if you're a K through 12 teacher and you're, um, and you're teaching science to kids, right. You want to, you want to show that science is a process of genuine inquiry. Right. And so, um, and so how, how could we teach someone how to become a scientist without involving genuine inquiry at, at all levels. Right. And, but yet somehow we often do where, you know, the inquiry is like often put into small little corners, you know, um, rather than being an integral piece of the curriculum. I think that's really, really changing quickly. I think in the United States, the, the idea is that as as active learning is catching on um, and, and evidence-based teaching seems to be actually more infused across institutions and there's care being shown to this, I think we're actually having, you know, scientific inquiry on, you know, to answer interesting new questions in the context of learning. I think is becoming more and more common. Um, you know, I'm
1: hopeful. Oh, yeah. Um, and you're making your contribution to it as well, which is very good. <laughs> um, another one of these sentences that just jumped out at me, and I have to come back to it because it circles one of my favorite topics, which is writing, of course, about lab assignments. Um, <laughs> you write, lab assi- assignments for labs can be all over the map. <laughs> But I just thought that was great. Talking about this idea of the variability of expectations when uh, the assignment is then uh, graded, uh, the inconsistency in the experimental protocols as to, again, expectations or the way that they're explained... You um, make the point also that uh, with the TAs and writing assistants, so people who may not even be in the sciences, perhaps they're from the uh, writing across the curriculum program, perhaps they're from the writing center. So those writing assistants, I assume you meant um, that they should be actually involved in the materials creation and in the lab planning and the grading, because um, it's not a given that somebody who's great at one particular area of science is going to be great at, you know, setting such assignments, uh, lab assignments so that, you know, students can get something out of them.
0: Yeah. So, um, so at my university on our writing across the curriculum committee, um, I, uh, some people might think that this is like, you know, a bureaucratic hoop, but I think it's actually a really uh, uh, important and useful step. And so we're developing uh, courses in each major that are a a writing course that you as students would need to take in their major to graduate. Instead of having just a general writing course you need to take to graduate across the whole university, you have a course within your own discipline. And so students are being taught to write in their discipline. But the development of this course and what this course looks like um, is with the, the... feedback but basically the authorization of this writing across the curriculum committee so this course in discipline specific writing still needs to go through review from faculty from um from other disciplines um knowing that not that that they're experts in writing in that particular field um because discipline specific writing i think is important but um But if you you still have to have that grounded in making sure that it's understandable to everybody, even if you're writing for your own discipline. Um, And so uh, I think a central challenge for a lot of faculty, and I don't really touch on this in the book so much, is that it's really hard to learn how to give good feedback um, to people who are writing Um, like it's um, it's easy to diagnose that, you know, writing needs to be improved one way or the other. Um, but to to give feedback, which is encouraging, um, but at the same time constructive, um, it's not just about, you know, putting a happy face and not using a red pen, right? It's like you have to be really structured and careful um, about um, identifying information that will steer a person towards the right way. I feel like when I talk with person about their writing, that's so much more effective than simply just writing notes on what they um are getting back and so uh kevin gannon um who um i who's reading i appreciate and who I know on, know on Twitter um, has said how what he has done in the past is he uh, he's a historian um, instead of sometimes, instead of just handing a student assignment back, he'll actually like make an audio recording. That's like a few minutes long, you know, and then send that file to the students where you describe, Oh, I'm reading through this. This makes sense. This doesn't, Oh, could, you know, this place looks good. Uh, I have an idea here. And imagine that kind of feedback if you were to put in print would take far much more time. And so I feel like if I've read an essay and a student comes in my office and we talk about it, that's far more productive than me just handing it back to them and writing. Um, and so I like this idea of giving students recordings.
1: I think, yeah, and it, it, it matches very well with your efficiency point on, on uh, preparing your teaching and so on. But it... It, it, if, if speaking as somebody coming from uh, writing studies, we know that talk is the way to deal with writing. It seems almost counterintuitive. You think, yeah, well, I mean, the best way to fix or work on writing is to just write more. No, it's sometimes actually to step back and to have a real conversation about what it is that you're trying to do or what it is that you've done. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I <laughs> wholeheartedly agree. And this would back up that idea that you do need to have these uh, writing assistants or these writing professionals or these people from the English department, whatever they might be, who just have. Have, uh, maybe more contact with, you know, textual purpose, textual structure, and such things as that, and also dealing with textual feedback, um, you know, working with scientists, um, it's, it's one of the general themes through your book that, you know, it, lots of people need to come together for this education to work, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, indeed. Um, and so,
0: and also, I mean, a lot of science education isn't necessarily about science, um, and you know, I mean, science as a process. Um, and so the, we're trying to understand a whole bunch of facts, but we're also trying to understand how those facts got created in the context of history and how we know what we know and how, and where the gaps in knowledge are, are part of understanding sociology, um, you know, and culture and history and, um, you know, and psychology and cosmology, right. And, and philosophy ultimately. And so, um, and so the interdisciplinarity is, is really critical. And I think writing is where the interdisciplinary interdisciplinarity can really happen. You know, if you're going to a writing center and you're talking to someone about your work, who's not a scientist, then I think um, they can help you see that bigger picture.
1: Yeah. And plus, there's also this, um, again, this is in English for academic purposes. This is sort of, you know, daily bread, this idea that in the sciences, you're doing maybe at best half of your time doing what people would see as normal science. The rest of it is communication. I mean, the whole process of a research article is entering into a community, thinking like them so that they'll understand you, getting your purpose across, and then gaining citations so that you become more and more of a member. As you said, the, it, this <laughs> you're not just doing... I mean, science is a process. You're not just getting a whole bunch of facts into somebody's lap.
0: Right. Yeah. 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 And so, and I think actually in terms of how we craft our learning objectives, then effective, I mean, people often talk about science communication as a thing that you do to non-scientists, um, that it's like, that's like a form of public outreach that if you, if you use that terminology, science communication to someone, at least within the US, then I think then they will think of like, oh, that's when you're go give a public talk or you're writing in the newspaper or writing a blog or on Twitter as like, or whatever. Um, but really. Um, like science communication is when you're communicating about science, which for scientists most often is with other scientists. And so the science communication is still a really important skill um, just when you're right. Cause that's um, when you're writing an article again, like, as you say, most of it is is contextualizing and communicating to the, the context of what you're saying. Um, and so I think uh, we, we could really benefit from, restructuring our curriculum to putting communication in the forefront. I think one of the main reasons we don't is that a, well, we're not experts in it, just like we're not experts in teaching. Um, but also B, um, it's really hard to do um, because it takes a lot of time and effort, just like with feedback on and, and, you know, writing, um, the, if you think of a lecture classroom, you know, like it has 80 students in it or something like that. It's like, how do you work individually with students to improve their communication you know, there are ways of doing it, but I think people would say, oh, it comes into the cost of content. And, you know, scientists love their content.
1: <laughs> they do. They do. But the, but then again, they, I think what they're missing is the fact that some of their content is, just as we're saying, part of this whole process. You know, science is a community and it's the knowledge that they share. It's not just necessarily, you know, the bugs that you've discovered under a rock. I'm sorry, I'm not an entomologist. <laughs> That's not meant disparagingly. <laughs> no. They're often um, under rocks.
0: That's fair. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, that's where I found them when I was a kid. <laughs> but, um, but but one example would be, uh, you know, the idea that you can, um, in a lab assignment, model a report. So say that this is how it's meant to be done, but you could also make it more along the lines of how you know, research gets done and make a proposal. Um, Christopher Tice, who I've interviewed on this pod- podcast, who, who's written a book um, called uh, "Communication: Science Communication in the 21st Century was the title. Um, he says, why not make assignment proposals just as we make grant or research proposals? So in other words, you know, this is what I intend to do, and this is why I want to do it, and whether or not the teacher accepts. Huh. Yeah, that
0: makes sense. And so I think that's... Um, in a very narrow sense, I think a lot of scientists are familiar with that when you have students do independent projects, right? Where it's like, oh, I want you to do a research. Like, so for instance, like in an animal behavior class, it's like I say, students will be intrigued about a particular aspect of animal behavior and they design an experiment they could do for part of the semester. But but I think that could be happening in so many other kinds of Classes, but instead of just saying design a research project, but it could be any kind of assignment that you want to do, right? Like let people have more control over their learning and set the scope. And that, yeah, I I really love that idea. Good. Um, I think there's there's a there's so much room for creativity in in right in how we teach. Like like we follow so many scripts that have been written for us. We enter the classroom, you know, with the baggage of having had a certain set of experiences and. Um, and often drawing from our previous experiences um, and sometimes we'll try something new but it's like a, some combination of trying something new based on what we know already works but often what we know already works actually doesn't work it's just already what we know it's like how do you it's, I mean we need to come into the classroom you know with experiences and as some level of expertise and teaching like and familiarity with what we're going to do but at the same time, that's really um, as constraining. It's like it's a handicap um, because, um, you know, you don't see the potential of all the ideas about what you can do.
1: I, I'd, lo- right? I'd love to just bounce this sort of general principle off you because you're so uh, familiar with the topic and have so much experience in this area. wouldn't it uh, be perhaps if you were trying to not entirely start over, but conceptualize a course for yourself and what it is that you wanted to have as learning outcomes and what you generally expected that a learner would take away from it as a future scientist, wouldn't it be perhaps as a great principle to follow the idea that Okay, well, let me work backwards from most of the things that I do as a scientist in my daily research, you know, the publishing process, the communication process, the lab work and the things that I need to be able to do there, the way that I think about my science and not necessarily the science that I'm thinking about, and so on and so forth. All of these steps which really sort of give us the sociology of science, if you could have learning outcomes that bring the students in those directions, wouldn't you really be designing the course for the better scientist?
0: Yeah. I mean, yeah, You, if you could design a course.
1: Yeah. I think I
0: would say that there are some classes that kind of, in theory, are designed to get at that. Like, so at least in undergraduate programs in the US, sometimes there are capstone classes where you basically are learning all of these other skills, but it's more like let's spend a day and learn about how you package together your CV and let, you know, it's like, and let's spend a day where we learn about how to interview for a job and let's spend a day, but it's more of a let's individual lessons tied to each, like these learning objectives associated with that rather than actually creating a whole experience, like guiding towards that. Um, yeah. I mean, like, so it's kind of like more of an immersive practice. I think, I think that would be great. Um, I think the, um, and I wouldn't even be surprised if in a class like that, right. Where you spend a lot of your time, you know, working through the pragmatics of what it means to be an academic on a day-to-day basis that way. Right. Or being a scientist on a, you know, day-to-day basis doing and publishing research that. Through all those struggles of the practical stuff, you actually end up learning more science in the meantime, because the science that you're doing, you know, is particularly meaningful to you, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, well, Terry, you've been very generous with your time. I'd, I'd like to uh, ask you the one last question, and this brings us sort of full circle back to uh, the beginning about the divide or the schism between uh, the sciences and uh, the educational experts. Sort of broad question. Answer it as you please. Uh, does does college science teaching need more non-scientist input, and likewise, do education researchers need more non-education re- input? <laughs> um, I would say, um,
0: honestly, no. But I think because I think, but I there are plenty of scientists who are, um, you know, education experts. Um, I, and I think they need a larger platform, Um, but, and I, and I think at the same time, um, uh, the people who are um, doing the research on science teaching and education um, are just like every other academic field in that, um, you know, they're writing for one another um, and they're writing for the people who want to hear what they have to hear. And so when I'm an ecologist and I'm writing my peer reviewed research articles um, like I'm realistic about the journals that I'm publishing and the people who are reading my work. And so when you publish your findings in a science education journal, then you're targeting people who are reading science education journals, most of whom are people who are, you know, doing that research. Uh, and so I think what we need um, is in general and i guess this maybe this is another way of rephrasing the question is like we need more interdisciplinarity and multidisciplinarity um it's like so the there has been such an emphasis in i think in the past you know century of where academics become experts in narrow disciplines like you are an expert in this narrow thing but and then you emphasize the your expertise and your prominence by knowing that narrow field really, really well. And as like almost as a point of pride, I'm an expert in this and I don't know anything about that stuff. And so uh, there are a lot of uh, impactful and successful academics, you know, would be successful in many different fields simultaneously. Um, that was the idea of what it was to be an academic you'd to be a polymath and know all and, have expertise in multiple domains. So when did we in academia give up on the idea that you're, that, that it's, that you can be an expert in, um, on, in more than one domain like that, because I study insects that I'm not supposed to be a person who understands and thinks about teaching or understands and thinks about literature, for example. Um, uh, but I'd like to think that even though I'm not a professor of literature, that I'm, that I, um, you know, that I read um, a lot of you know, novels and I can think about literature in a, in a constructive way and I can have a positive conversation about that with a professor of literature and not sound like an idiot, I would think. Um, and so I wouldn't necessarily call myself an expert, but, um, but I think academics need to th- be ex- more open to the idea that we can dabble into other fields and that we can communicate with experts in other fields um, in a meaningful way. And so like, if you're, you know, if I'm talking to professors in other disciplines, I, we feel like we're just barely treading on their ground be like, well, I can't really understand what you're doing, but then there's this little bit and they try to explain to me so but how about we actually just understand that maybe we can really more deeply engage with one another across disciplines. So it's not like education researchers need to hear more from scientists or that scientists, you know, need to, um, you know, be open to listening to people in other fields. But I think just in general, perhaps academics need to, um, think of themselves, um, more often as, um, as generalists in part that obviously we are specialists, but at the same time to be an academic means that you're an academic, not just an expert in a narrow field.
1: Yeah. Specialization has for me often meant, uh, because I've come across many of, uh, in, in my areas, these ultra specializations that you've been talking about, the person who just like knows everything about, uh, you know, medieval English in the 12th century. And you just think, like, wow, man, <laughs> that's just, he's got everything. And then you think, um, that these sorts of specializations though can be a form of fragmentation because that means that person's, uh, Area of knowledge is not going to necessarily overlap with anyone else's, or so the overlaps will be so thin that you can't necessarily piece it all together into some grander understanding of what's going on. Maybe in the English language, or as the English language, you know, affects other areas all the way into science. Um, science is done in English, and I mean you could do this sort of thinking with any particular topic. I'm sure you could come up with examples about ants. <laughs> the point is, is that specialization is. Potentially a fragmentation,
0: right? And also, also, it limits the impact of what your work will be. And so, I think the I think academics at one point would say, I even if you're working in some narrowish field, that your information could still communicate with other people and speak to other people, so that your ideas, which might have broader utility, could actually communicate and be found by those people um, who would be interested in that. But if if all you are planning to do is to speak with and interact with people in your narrow level of expertise, then your ideas won't penetrate beyond that. And so, I mean, so what is our vision of what academia is and how we make impact is I think a central, is a central issue. And so I, I think that, um, you know, some scientists I've learned from some scientists that, um, your work is not done until you've communicated it, um, more broadly, right? And so, like, there's the process. They say, "Oh, you're done publishing." And once you publish your paper, then that project is done. No, your your project is done. Then after when you publish, then you're talking about it with other people. It comes up, you know, in line at the grocery store, or when you're talking with a friend, or if you're giving a public talk in some group, you know, that it informs in that way. Um, not to say that I'm going to harass a person in the grocery store, you know, line about you know the, Don't the my step latest on the <laughs> <laughs> right right but but it's like yeah but it's like oh i said yes yeah, so by the way or it's like or you could talk about climate change or you know as an issue um you know and and how and maybe how it what you do is informing that um or vice versa and so the um and so i feel like um like there's certain a level of pride that academics have developed in being an expert in a very narrow domain and it's very comfortable and it's also like, you know, it inc- it ensures some level of career success by saying I am the most expert person in this very narrow thing is very different from I'm an academic who works on this, but I'm an academic. And so, um, you know, that your job is to communicate and share knowledge.
1: I like your I definition of a- academic. That's, that's, that's very interesting. And I want to thank you generally for the book and for the interview. Uh, very good stuff. That is yeah. Terry McGlinn And his book, The Chicago Guide to College Science Teaching, is out last year with the University of Chicago Press. I'm Daniel Shea, and this is goodbye from me to Terry. Goodbye. Right. Thank you very much. It was great talking with you. And um, This is goodbye to all of you. Bye-bye. And until next time here on Scholarly Communication.